Let's pray. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A guy went to see a psychiatrist because he was having an identity crisis. Some days I feel like a teepee, he says. The other days I feel like a wigwam. I don't know which one is true. One day teepee, the next day wigwam. Teepee, wigwam, teepee, wigwam. Finally, the psychiatrist yells out and says, Get a grip, man. You're too tense. (laughs) Pastor Bruce will explain that joke on the patio later. Well, I'm sure you know there's a lot of discussion in our world today about identity. There is identity theft, identity crisis. There are people saying that they identify with this or that or identify as this or that. In other times, in our, and in other cultures, actually, this idea of identity was not such an urgent concern as it is today. At one time, a man and a woman would grow up in a certain city and in a family. They'd have a social construct or a guild. And today, though, many of us live far away from our families and from our places of origin. And back in the day we used to have a lot of our identity shaped by our families. And some of this was identified for us, you know, as even at our birth. If you were a farmer, likely you were going to be a farmer too. But today, we have multiple jobs and the kids say side hustles, right? We have uh, multiple careers even. And so this can erode our confidence in our identities. Psychology Today says this, Identity encompasses the memories, experiences, relationships, and values that create one's sense of self. This amalgamation creates a steady sense of who one is over time even as new facets are developed and incorporated into one's identity. They go on to say that everyone struggles with this existential question such as, who am I? And what do I want my future self to be? One reason, they say, is that the answer is so complex. Well, those of us here, having lived many years on this earth, realize that our identities do change. We went from dependent to independent, from student to employee, from single to married, from spouse to widow or widower, from worker to retirement, all kinds of life changes we've experienced and Each of these requires a redefinition of who I am now. It's been said 
that we should never say, or be very careful anyway, about starting a sentence with, I am. We should never say, for example, I am a loser, because we should not define ourselves by our weaknesses. Nor should we say, I am a powerful executive, because we shouldn't establish our identity through our achievements. So you may be thinking, well, I can't define myself by my strengths. I can't define myself by my weaknesses. What, what's left? Well, as we reflect on our identity, I think it's important for us that we do not define ourselves by skills, powers, or roles because all of those things can readily change during our lives. This man, Alex, um, Alex Kendrick, he's the director of a movie called Overcomer. He's actually an ordained pastor. He says this, he says, there is an ongoing debate in our culture about who or what gets to determine our identity, he said. We believe the creator gets to define his creation. When we find our personal identity in Christ, then that is the truest and most stable foundation we could have. Well, I would like us to look today about what makes up the Christian identity. And in this letter, 1 Peter, he's concentrating on shaping the community to understand what it is to be God's people. And for Peter, the identity questions begin with, who is my God? Who do I trust? And what is my community? The question of whose I am is a greater weight than who I am. So in our text today, Peter says that it's our faith that defines us. And last week we heard that Jesus Christ was the foundation of that faith. And so we're going to take a look at Christian identity today. We're going to look at what it means to be a living stone, what it means to be a holy priesthood, and what it means to be a chosen race, and what it means to be a people. So let's first consider a living stone and living stones. You remember last week, Pastor Steve talked about Peter given a new name. And Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church, meaning on the testimony of Peter. He didn't say, on you, Peter, I will build my church. He said, no, on this rock I will build my church. And there may have been some wordplay here. Um, he says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And he called him Rock, Petros, or Rocky. And then he said, on this rock, Petra, in the Greek. So two kinds of rock. And maybe all this rocky business has Peter thinking about what it means to be a rock, what it means to be a stone or a living stone. And so maybe that inspired him to write this idea of us being living stones connected to the living stone. He says that when we come to Jesus, he's the living stone. We become living stones. And I think of it as like us being built together in a wall, right? And we are part of that wall, but 
what's dependent on us is that foundation, right? We need a foundation that is stable, that is rock solid, that is secure, that is square. We need a really good foundation. You remember Pastor Steve last Sunday talked about their home and the foundation of the house was sinking. They had to demo the whole house. Sometimes Peter was rock solid, dependable. But other times Peter was, well, unstable. And so Peter could be used for the kingdom, but Peter could not be the foundation. Jesus is the foundation, the solid rock. But if we consider the walls of the church that are being built up, think of yourself as one of those stones. Well, we are all connected together, aren't we? And so I see that there's an interdependency there of these stones. We're, we're dependent on each other, but we're also connected to the foundation, which is Jesus and it really speaks to this idea of, can there really be a Lone Ranger Christian? Do you know what a Lone Ranger Christian is? Lone Ranger Christians are those that, well, they're too good, they're too busy, they're too self-sufficient to bother with the church. Well, I really think that this text speaks to that, and it says that's a walking contradiction. It just doesn't work. And if we read Scripture, we'll know that all Scriptures testify that living stones cannot be godly, cannot be fruitful, unless they are part of God's family, joined together in the family of the church. And so the living stones are only living when they're connected to the foundation, which is Jesus. And what we learn as we follow Jesus, that it really requires for us to be connected to his community, the church. And so we come to him, the living stone, and as we come, we become living stones incorporated into God's spiritual house. That is if we hear this testimony and believe it. He or she becomes a living stone, part of that living temple that God is building up, and yet Peter says that we are more than just part of the temple. We're also, he says, a holy priesthood. So let's look at what this means, what it means to be a holy priesthood. In the Old Testament, there was a huge chasm between the priests and the people. It was dramatic. And God had set apart the priests to offer sacrifices and forgiveness and to pray for the people and to share his instruction, his truth. But Peter says, now we are priests. We are a holy priesthood. We will be reminded in a couple weeks when we gather for Good Friday that when Jesus breathed his last, that moment in the temple, a large curtain is torn in two. And the scripture says that the earth shook and the rocks split. This curtain divided 
and it was a heavy, thick curtain. It was the curtain that separated God from people. And only the priest would go in to the Holy of Holies through that curtain once a year to offer sacrifices for the atonement of sin. So what are we to make of this today? What's significant about this veil, this large curtain being torn? Well, I think the tearing of the veil is a dramatic symbolization of Jesus' sacrifice, his shedding of his own blood, and that it was sufficient for the atonement for sins once and for all. But it also signified now the way to the Holy of Holies was open. It was open to Gentiles. It was open to Jews. It was open to all people. We had access to the temple. And so, in a sense, this, this, this curtain, this veil, is a symbol of Christ himself as the only way to the Father. And this indicated by the fact that that priest, chosen on that day, that one day to go in, they would enter through that veil. They'd have to enter in through that veil, through the Holy of Holies, but now... Jesus Christ is our high priest, and as believers, he's finished his work, right? This priesthood is a superior um, priesthood, and so we partake in that as priests. And so we can now enter the Holy of Holies through him, through Christ, through the veil. So, we are all priests. That means that we all can pray. We all can ask for forgiveness. We all can do this without intermediaries. We can do this without permission slips. We can know and understand God's word because we know that God will lead us to all truth through the power of his Holy Spirit. We have access to all this. We are a priest. Now, we offer a different kind of sacrifice. We are priests, but as priests, we offer spiritual sacrifices. We offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. Now, I know many of you are thinking, wait a minute. I don't feel too worthy to be a priest. I don't think... I feel too worthy to be offering any spiritual sacrifice to God. We know that God only accepts perfect sacrifices, and we all know we are not perfect. This is true, and it was true for Peter. We're all flawed, just like Peter. But here's what we can do. We can offer up our spiritual sacrifices through Christ, and he forgives, and he makes them perfect before the Father. So he perfects them. In our worship, our spiritual sacrifices are offered up to God. 
And for Peter, this is a very key point. Our worship precedes our conduct and even our service, our ministry. And so this spiritual sacrifices that we lift up, our daily devotion, our obedience, our praise to God. And, and we also have a ministry to the people in this church and the pr- people in our community that we reach out to. You know, the other day we were in a meeting. Uh, the pastors gather on Tuesday mornings for worship and prayer and study. And the other day, we I don't remember the context, but we were marveling at what God was doing in our church. We were marveling at what God was doing even during the pandemic. What God was doing on the South Campus. What God is doing in Midtown. And then you think about it, we have a Korean church that is worshiping here at our North Campus, praying and worshiping. And at our South Campus, we have a Pentecostal church who is praying and worshiping all of us lifting up spiritual sacrifices to God it makes you wonder we we're doing something right <laughs> right i mean we're offering up spiritual sacrifices and and God is blessing our work and yeah it's something to marvel at but it's also something to celebrate. We should be very excited, especially when a lot of churches are, you know, just trying to get by. We're, we're actually, we're actually just, we're doing really well. We should celebrate it. It should be really something we should be very pleased about. And I think it's partly, too, that we have a lot of us who are involved in studies and in prayer and in worship on Wednesdays in life groups in small groups in various studies that go on during the week a lot of us I think a high percentage of us are involved in that even beyond our worship on Sunday morning we got to continue to do that and next he says that we are a chosen race and this may be the most shocking thing he says? When you think of God's chosen people, you think of Israel, don't you? I mean, he's talking to a bunch of Christians who are being persecuted, maybe in exile, and he writes to them, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. You are a people of God. You are my Israel. He rescued you from slavery at the costs of the Lamb's blood. He brought you through the Red Sea of baptism to the other side to resurrection. He dwells in your midst. He tabernacles among you. You are chosen, holy, His God chose Jesus, and now he's chosen us. All of God's people, whether Jew or Gentile, he's chosen us. And we are one community of faith now. 
Jesus is the chosen one of God, and he is precious to God, and we are also precious to God, precious in his sight. Tim Keller said as he was preaching on this text, um, I think he's preached this many times, but he said that a Bible teacher taught him that he says that it says chosen, not choice. Chosen, not choice. Because if we were a choice people, we may think that we are better than other people. It doesn't mean that there's something good in us. It means there's something good in God, and He just simply chose us, and it is all free grace. It's all about grace. And then finally, He says, we are a people. A people belonging to God. In the Greek, it literally says, a people for possession. And it's more than mere ownership. God possesses His people because He has redeemed us, and we are His, and your identity is secure. It is rock solid. He says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Well, as God's people, we are invited to a table that He has prepared for us, And you're invited to come to this table, but I should warn you that it may change you. It may change you from someone who's anxiously concerned about your identity into one who knows that we are chosen by God and accepted by God. This is a table that's prepared for you by God, but I must warn you that If you come to this table, it may change you because you might know that you are redeemed not by our being good, but because we are connected to the foundation which is Jesus, the Christ. So come, those of you who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light, come and be made whole at this table and participate in the work, that spiritual work of making us one with him and each other.